Charles Darwin's theory of natural selection states that the traits passed on are those with positive attributes for their environment. So what was Hollywood thinking when they adapted Stardust? Unnatural Selection, a podcast about the film adaptations of books, the weird decisions Hollywood makes in the process, and what makes an adaptation good, faithful, and less commonly good and faithful. I'm your usual host, Emma. I use any pronouns, and today I am joined by Blink. Blink, would you like to introduce yourself? <laughs> sure. I am Blink, uh, more commonly on the internet, I think known as Blink Marquee, if you can manage to find me. I don't really exist in very many social spaces, but if you ever see someone named Blink who uses Z here, they, them, or any combination of various pronouns, it's probably me. <laughs> well, there you go. And today we are talking about Neil Gaiman's book, Stardust, and the 2007 movie adaptation thereof. Yes, uh, a longtime favorite of mine, especially the movie. I hadn't reread the book since I think I was 11 or 12, so it was nice to go back to it. Nice. Yeah. There's the thing that I always forget I do at the start of this show, uh, which is I usually compare the synopses, ah. and I always forget to pull it up. <laughs> I wasn't expecting as much variation between the two synopses, but there's like kind of a lot with these there's two. There's like kind of a lot. There's like kind of a lot. <laughs> yeah. I'm trying to find... A, a good short one for the book. Oh, best of luck. Yeah. You're not... This page says it's a synopsis, but it's not. It's just quotes about the book. <laughs> well, I think... Well, no, oh, maybe no. it is. It's just It just ends with an ellipsis, which makes it feel like... All right. Weird choice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll go with that. So, <laughs> this weird synopsis of the book is young Tristran Thorne has lost his heart to the beautiful Victoria Forrester and, to win her love, vows to bring her a star they see fall from the night sky. It is an oath that sends him over the town's ancient wall and into the mysterious land of fairy, a world that is dangerous and strange beyond imagining. Dot, dot, dot. And that's it. That's everything. <laughs> <laughs> that sure isn't the first third of the book only. Sure not, No. It's not even the first third, because in the first third, we get a whole bunch of stuff about other characters. That's yeah. true. <laughs> All right. That's, that's our book synopsis. Our, our movie synopsis is to win the heart of his beloved, a young man named Tristan, not Tristran, Tristan, mm -hmm. ventures into the realm of fairies to retrieve a fallen star. What Tristan finds, however, is not a chunk of space rock, but a woman named Yvain. Yvain is in great danger, for the king's sons need her powers to secure the throne, and an evil witch wants to use her to achieve eternal youth and beauty. So a little bit more comprehensive. <laughs> mm -hmm. But Definitely. already we're getting some changes. Yes, yes, we are indeed. I did have to double check, actually, because I had not even noticed that in the book he's Tristran, which... You know, you'd think it would be obvious, <laughs> but your brain just skips right over that extra R because it shouldn't be there. 
It shouldn't be there. It took me a few, like when I was reading it, I was reading it at work and I was like, is this just a typo? And then I went back and realized that every time the name was yes. there, yes. it was I Tristan. support the decision to change it to Tristan. Sorry. <laughs> I get it, but I also think it would have been funny. It would have been very funny to watch Consider. everyone attempt to say Tristran every single time. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um, no, it was, it was interesting going back and reading the book because I feel like there's a lot of things like that. Even in that synopsis, there was something that I feel like got kind of lost in translation about like fairy as the world that they go to. Yes. Um, yeah, they don't go to fairy. They go to the Stormhold Kingdom. Right, which, like, not to be nitpicky, Stormhold does exist in the book, but it's a kingdom within the world of fairy. It's not the entirety yes. of the world that they're going to. Um, and that that is, like, a minor discrepancy to some respects, but also as a person who, like, really appreciates folklore and mythology. Mm-hmm. Um, I enjoyed that the book was so determined to embed itself in folklore, specifically folklore native to the UK. Mm-hmm. Um, and I really appreciate appreciated the building out of fairy which when you look at the movie i feel like a lot of the time the changes that they made were to make it more concise and more easily digestible and it's a lot easier to say they're going to this fictional world where nothing works as it's supposed to as opposed to say they're going to fairy which has all this baggage and previous associations so i get it but i definitely prefer the fictional world that the book builds out Definitely. And we will get into that. But then for the the listeners who haven't read the book, first, go read it. (laughs) Yes. Go read it. First of all, it was a really fast read. It's very fun. You can find it in multiple sections of your local library. If it's like mine that where the librarian was surprised when I I asked for it and she went, oh, it's in the, did you check the young adult section upstairs, the teens room? And I went, I looked online and there's one copy in the regular fiction department as well. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it it does read as a young adult. I feel like Gaiman in particular has this weird sort of straddling the line between young adult and adult fiction in a lot of his works. Um, because it's really just kind of what he deals with. In yeah, yeah, it, you like think the about Graveyard Coraline. Book, <laughs> or yeah, the Graveyard Book, Coraline, Ocean at the End of the Lane. Yeah, where it's like, if you're a kid and you find that book, you're going to be like, I'm so excited and I want to read it and it sounds interesting. And then you're going to get to things like in the ocean at the end of the lane, there's like the affair that the father is having with the babysitter mm-hmm. or in Coraline. That book traumatized me when I was like eight years old because it was way mm-hmm. scarier than I expected it to be. Um, and Stardust, I think, has less of that. There are certainly some like gorier, harsher bits, but for the most part, it reads kind of like a fairy tale or like a bedtime story as opposed to you know, the darker elements that you get in a lot of his other books. Yeah, it is very much like a fairy tale. And then there's like things that you won't necessarily find in most modern fairy tales. Like you'll find uh, there's a, there's no better way to put this. There's a lot of fucking. There is. There is. And, you know, it it reminds me a bit of there's this quote that's been going around about the Discworld novels and how Terry Pratchett approaches sex in a very British way where fucking is present but it's not necessarily on screen like you just know that Mm -hmm. it's happening and i think that stardust kind of takes a similar note like it is on screen a couple times but for the most part it's just 
that is what happens. That is what people do. Mm-hmm. And we accept that and we move on. Um, as opposed yeah. to the movie, which is like, people will be having sex on screen all the time. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And staring at themselves in the mirror and the mood and yep. all those kinds of things. <laughs> uh, so as we get into it, would you like to give us a, a summary of the events of the book? I can certainly try. Um, The book starts out by giving this kind of presentation of the city of Wall, where there is a festival every nine years. um, And it's divided in half by a wall that has one kind of gap or opening. The festival takes place on one side, and you have the people of Wall who live on the normal English side. But they all kind of get involved in this. They guard the wall to make sure no one goes back and forth. And you meet one of them who is Dunstan Thorne. He's interested in this woman in town. He's flirting with her and whatever. And it is very specifically set in the Victorian era England, which I thought was interesting because I didn't really associate it with a time period. But it does make it very clear that that is the time that we are set in. And the festival comes and Dunstan goes across the wall to enjoy the wares of the people of Fairy and hooks up with one of the vendor's servants. And then nine months later, he gets... A baby, Tristran, who is part fairy, part human, and is delivered across the wall. Um, And the book jumps forward to when Tristran is growing up in town and how he fits into the city of Wall. But he never really fully fits in. And then he goes to propose to a woman in town that he's interested in. And they see a falling star. And he says, I'll bring the star back for you if you'll marry me. And she says, okay. And he goes across the wall and vanishes for however many months. And in that time, he meets various members of the world of fairy. He meets some sky pirates. He meets witches and various other entities within the world. But most importantly, he meets Yvain, who is the fallen star. It's not a ball of rock. It's a woman. And she kind of has her own journey to go on on the side about personhood and what life she wants to live and whether she wants to return home and in the six months of going back to wall they fall for each other and then the book kind of gives them a happy ending and yeah (laughs) there's lots of little like asides of oh and then they go and they save this city and they go and they do this (laughs) but none of that is relevant (laughs) there's like two other side stories happening one about the the lords of stormhold yes the lords of stormhold who have to kill each other in order to claim their birthright as the king of stormhold the previous king just died he sent his little necklace up into the sky which is what knocked the star down so that's happening (laughs) and they're trying to kill each other and find the necklace so that they can claim their birthright Uh, And then there are the witches who eat the stars in order to maintain their youth and they're hunting the star down so that they can cut out Yvain's heart and once again return to their youth. So those are two other plot lines that the book is also trying to juggle um, as it gives Tristran and Yvain their sort of buildings roman of growing up. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, so I think one of the best places to start here is just the framing device and wall in general. Wall is fascinating to me, especially because um, in, in the movie, it's presented as sort of unbelievable. Like no one actually thinks that wall is connected to the world of fairy. It's very easily dismissed. 
Um, whereas in the book, it's like everyone knows that Wall has a connection. And everyone knows that you go there every nine years and there's a market and you can cross over into very, like, that's part of it. And to take away that element in the movie, I thought was really interesting, especially because Wall is so much of a character. Like, in and of itself, there's this whole mentality of the people of Wall and then the others, which both classifies people who come to visit Wall and people who live across the Wall who are in the world of fairy. Like, you are either born and raised in Wall or you are someone else. You are an other. And the movie is just kind of like, no, Wall's a normal (laughs) English town. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's genuinely, like, a little heartbreaking because I think that's such a compelling like a line for them to literally have to cross is like into the market every nine years and like what makes wall why are they guarding it it is more clear when you know there's the market like there's actually a reason to guard the wall when you know there's the market every nine years yeah and to have it only be one man guarding who doesn't even know what's on the other side of the wall as opposed to instead of like the the whole community Yeah, everyone, all the young men of the town take turns guarding the wall. And that's like something that bonds them together. And they know why. They know that there is fairy on the other side. Um, Which helps to make it feel a little bit more real and like rooted in. I feel like if there were this wall with this gap in it and the rule was nobody crosses the wall, people would be trying to cross it all the time. (laughs) That's just what people do when you set a rule like that. Yeah, so invoking this right of, like, everyone but helps if you have to guard the, the wall, I can see that. Yeah, if they know what's on the other side, and they are also part of the group protecting the wall, then they won't try to cross it. And in the movie, it's like, there's just this one 99-year-old guy, or however old he is, standing guard. People would be mm-hmm. trying to cross all the time. Yeah, what do you also think about the fact that the wall is very short? <laughs> it's so short! You would think that a wall between the two worlds would be, like, so much more impressive than that. It's like, you could jump over that at any point. Like, I get that there's a lot of old short walls like that in England, but they make a point in the book that the wall is, like, big and the city is named because there is this big giant wall that has always been there. Yeah, and then in the movie it's like, that could just be any old crumbled old wall around the country. You can hop it. You can jump over it. <laughs> you can jump it. No one would stop. Well, I mean, he would stop you, but no one would stop you. <laughs> but but if it's that short, why do you have to go through the gap? Why can't you just go over it 10 feet south? Yeah. Yeah. And I, I've always wondered about the decision to have the opening of the movie be the letter to the astronomer saying like... Yes. We have this wall, and if you cross it, then you enter into who knows what. We don't know. We can't cross it. And the astronomer being like, this is nonsense, and not responding. I don't I don't understand that decision. <laughs> Personally, I, I think it. that's kind of odd. Um, it feels like they had somewhere they were going with it and then just forgot. Yeah, because he never comes back. And there's never any sort of resolution about the people in Wall finding out about what's on the other side. Like, sure, the guard does at the end. But, like, it's not like you come to a place of equal exchange between the two worlds. No one else is going to believe what happened either. 
Yeah, or like the weird back and forth of like, but the stars are also watching us. The stars are also watching, but only in certain ways. It drove me nuts that in the movie, Evane does not know that the necklace around that she wears is the King of Stormholds. Mm-hmm. Because in the book, she knows because she was watching because she uh-huh. is a star. And in the movie, despite the fact that the narration tells us every star was watching when the necklace was thrown into the sky, mm-hmm. Evane has no idea what it is. And she doesn't know what it means. And she's just wearing it around her neck because it came down with her. Uh, which is unfortunate because I thought it really added a lot to her character for her to know these things and to have actually observed the goings on immediately before she fell, as opposed to just the vague, I've seen love stories play out. I've seen people go mm-hmm. on adventures. Like, I liked scenes where people came up to her and she could say, I know what you want from me because I've seen this before. Or I know that you want yeah. the stone because I was I saw you coming for me i just think that added a lot to her character there's a lot of that missing in the movie because in Mm -hmm. the book every single character knows they have a purpose with regards to some other character and that's like a very interesting through line that everybody's stories are connected and that you have a purpose in someone else's journey yeah and i feel like we're giving the movie a bad rep here because the book is just so spectacular but it's worth noting like it's a fun movie It's incredible. They brought in some stuff out that I truly enjoyed that isn't in the book pretty much at all. And I I think they did a really good job. It's just that it is more designed to be a film, I think. Mm-hmm. The adaptation was like, oh, people will want a big fight scene at the end. People will want oh, yep. these big dramatic things to happen that don't happen in the book to provide a sort of cinematic resolution as opposed to the book's ending, which I would say is fairly quiet and reserved and just sort of like, and all the stories wrap up because everyone has completed their purpose, which we've set out for you in a very fairy tale storybook type way. The mm-hmm. movie is like necromancy, animals tearing people limb from limb, fighting with swords, things exploding. And it, it just like, it was coming in with a different intent. Um, yes. And some of it worked. Some of it didn't. I feel like the characters got flattened quite a bit in that transition. Yeah. Even if I appreciate the movie for what it is. It is a dearly beloved film for me. (laughs) They do Tristran, or should I say Tristan, so dirty. They do him so dirty. They make him such a little shit in the worst possible way. God bless Charlie Cox. He is so charming. I've tried so hard that he were a romantic lead in more movies than just this. I genuinely mm-hmm. think he does a wonderful job at being a compelling and likable young man. That being said, <laughs> if it were anyone else in that role, I would despise that character. Even from the get-go, like yeah. there's the scene where he and Victoria are having their conversation. And Victoria really isn't very likable in this movie either. No. In the book, it's like these two are childhood friends. They're familiar with each other. They've had some kind of romantic fling in the past. And Mm -hmm. the only reason why Victoria is not acting romantically toward Tristram is because she already has another romantic involvement that he doesn't know about. So Mm -hmm. it's all very, like, explained. And in the movie, she's just kind of mean. 
she's been turned into sort of like fantasy Regina George. <laughs> yeah, and they created a new surprise man for her to be with. Henry Cavill, my beloved. Why did they do that to him? Why is he there? <laughs> Who is he? He's not in the book. My notes, literally, when he showed up, I just have in all caps, like, Humphrey, you bastard. Like, Who he, is he? He's so <laughs> unnecessary. He's just here to be like, and Tristran is a loser. And it's like, we already know that. He lost his job as a shop boy. He's not doing super well for himself. He's from the side of the wall that no one really believes exists. Like, we know. We get it. Um, Yeah, that also creates, like, such a different vibe for the fact of, like, most of the people in the town know that Tristran came from the wall and from the fairies, except he doesn't. And that creates Mm. such a compelling vibe for his character. And the movie squanders that by having it be like this weird uh, baby showed up. And also, like, Dunstan tells him suit at the right start away. of the film. It's like, oh yeah, here's your mom. He, your mom left you a letter instead of this series of events that pulls all the characters together mm-hmm. and reunites them and lets him realize that he is from. Yeah. He, he realizes first in his heart that he is from Wall because he fits in better, and then he literally realizes that he is from Wall. Or not from Wall, and from Fairy. And it's also just like... Yeah, he realizes later on. But you get these nice moments where it's like everyone in the town knows and no one has told him because it's not their place. So, like, when Dunstan goes up to the Wall with Tristan and says... He's going back where he came from. And the two guarding the wall go, oh, of course, go on through. Like, that means something. That has so much weight. And in the book, it's just given that time to sort of breathe and come together. And in the movie, it's just like, well, very conveniently, here's all the stuff your mother sent you, including a Babylon candle to get where you need to go. Um, But yeah, you get these, like, nice moments of the people in wall letting him cross over into fairy despite the fact that that breaks the rules because that's where he came from and they all know that that's where he came from um and his younger Mm -hmm. sister and his mother never say that he's not part of the family even if he can feel that distance um right also the fact that the mother and sister aren't even there in the movie (laughs) oh my god yeah i mean they clearly just wanted to wrap that up very neatly so that there's no like no issue of it being a family movie it makes it an issue if there's been an affair or a different kid in a family movie yeah yeah and you know i do think it's interesting that dunstan kind of had to as it were bear the shame of having committed infidelity um because una the woman that he slept with just sends the baby to him so she's not Mm -hmm. a single mother he is the one having to face the ramifications of a one night stand which is interesting given again victorian england that is not typically how it goes yeah um so that was all interesting but the book didn't really get into that and so the movie was just like we're not we're not gonna go there at all the mother and Mm -hmm. sister just don't exist which is a shame because I do like Louisa as sort of the voice of pointing out to Tristan that he doesn't fit in. And then later saying, you may not be from here, but you're still my brother. Like, I thought their moment at the end of the book mm-hmm. was really, really nice. Yeah. Yeah, it's a nice relationship. Yeah. But it makes things less neat and tidy. 
<laughs> as books and particularly game and books often do. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I think that this book does a really nice job with its character work and also with the setting. And the movie really loves the visuals and does a lot of fun things. I will never not love Captain Shakespeare, which I'm sure we'll get into. But the yeah, way that it treats it. Tristan <laughs> immediately, like chaining Yvain up to the tree instead of letting her yes. go. Things like that, where it's like in the book, even if he's necessarily guided by the wrong reasons, i.e. chaining Yvain up in the first place to take her to Victoria, eventually he comes to his senses and is like, I can trust you and I want you to be better uh, and be in better conditions. And in the movie, it's just kind of like, well, he's a little bit of a little shit because it's 2008 and that's what we do here. Yeah, they never, like, they don't have Tristan, like, create a splint for her leg or even care that it's broken. Mm-hmm. And then it's and just the magically he chains her to the so... tree instead of just, like, asking, like, hey, will you stay here? Right. And then her leaving. <laughs> but that's like a huge point in the book too is that he gets information that he would not have been given otherwise right because the tree other only women helps him go... because she knows he didn't mm-hmm. yeah other women go oh you didn't keep her chained and for that i will help you um as opposed to in the movie when it's gen- exactly. like genuinely why would evane ever like him <laughs> It's also the the time frame change. Mm. In the, the time movie, frame is the insane. Book, it happens over several months. Yeah, the, the movie is a one week. It's one week, which even going by the montages, it physically can't be. Um, they set that one <laughs> week timeline, and then it's like, there's no way, there's no way that they were literally. They just can't. Six months is so much more reasonable. And even then. It's like, it makes sense. It gives them time to develop as people. Because the whole story is about them growing up, basically. Mm-hmm. They it's... grow up, they fall in love. And then it makes it really compelling when Tristan sees Victoria for the first time. And she's like, oh my god, I thought I killed you. Yeah, and again, that says so much about Victoria. Like, I was really struck by her saying, I thought that I had sent you to your death and I was not willing to commit to getting married or anything like that until I knew that my obligations to you had been settled as opposed to in the movie when she's just sort of like oh this is just a bunch of rock anyway I was never going to marry you it's like okay you're truly nothing exactly (laughs) she sucks she's just bad I mean, the fact that they let her her, the fact that they let them cross the wall for Tristan's coronation at the end of the movie, (laughs) just for the goof. The coronation in which, might I add, Dunstan and Una are also married now, despite the fact that all they have in common is that they slept together. (laughs) I think it's really funny. Yeah, because you don't get any of the stuff from the, the book of, like, them having their weird connection or like Dunstan being given the gift of his heart's desire. Yeah. The heart's desire thing is really fun. And the returning characters, like part of why Tristan succeeds is because his dad helped people out 
nine years, 18 years exactly. ago. Like, it, he wouldn't have been able to succeed without the help of people that his father had already helped. And it builds up so much in terms of, like, the interconnectedness of the wall and the fairy and these people who re- return every nine years. Um, and, oh, man, I, I just yeah. wish that some of that get, like, had been there. A lot of that builds up Tristan's character also, like, with the, the little hairy man that his dad helped, who mm. then offers him help and, like, feeds him mushrooms and stuff and keeps insisting, oh, they're just humble mushrooms that I found. And Tristan's like, no, this is literally the best meal I've had in my life. I would die for you. Yeah, Trist- Tristan is so genuinely likable. He's such, like, he's so willing to accept his mistakes and learn. And that is really admirable, given how often he does make mistakes. <laughs> um, yeah. And and I I just... I really feel like Tristran is better than Tristan in pretty much every way that he could be. Um, but yeah, so and you know, ways. similar things happen to Yvain. Like, we do lose the disability representation of her having suffered from the fall and yes. her, like, healing improperly. And that being something she has to learn to live with for the rest of her life, as opposed to in the movie when it's just magically healed. And I find her sort of behavioral quirks, like, both the movie and the book decide that Yvain is going to be headstrong and argumentative. But in the book, it comes across as, like, a young woman who's confused and hurting. And in the movie, it's Mm -hmm. just kind of like, oh, she's rude. (laughs) Yeah, she's just kind of a bitch. She's just kind of mean. Um, And given her circumstances, that's somewhat understandable, but you have to reach to get there as opposed to you know seeing her crying when she first falls in the book and throwing dirt at Tristran when he shows up to help her because she's just scared and little things like telling Tristran to interfere and save the unicorn things where it's like oh she cares and she's a full person and she does have some involvement Mm -hmm. in this plot beyond just complaining and arguing and nagging (laughs) Yeah, and, like, there's some things... So, like, the unicorn and the lion fight. I know... I I found an academic article, (laughs) an academic paper that cites on the adaptation process of this, that cites an interview um, that says that that scene had to be cut because of the budget. Oh, yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure that they had such a whopping budget for all the special effects used in this film. (laughs) All that good, good 2007 CGI. All the glowing. Um, oh, man. Yeah. And the weird aging the glowing of was Michelle a lot. Pfeiffer. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was, it was interesting looking into sort of the reception of this film at the time, too, because people really loved Michelle Pfeiffer and thought that she should have had more of a role mm-hmm. in the film. And they thought that... My my good friend Captain Shakespeare, played by Robert De Niro, of all people, should have been embarrassed, which I cannot wrap my head around. Simply can't. So this article that I found also talks about that a little bit in a fascinating uh-huh. way, which is they, uh, the director essentially made changes for Captain Shakespeare specifically 
because he wanted De Niro to get to play a character outside of his normal typecast and repertoire. And De Niro kills it. It's so good. And I'm sure some of the backlash of saying, like, (laughs) it's not funny, blah, blah, blah. Like, I'm sure some of that is just homophobia and an aversion to men in dresses in particular. Um, but De Niro, like... Yeah, I was worried it was going to be a yikes moment, but then, no, <laughs> they keep him alive, they make him happy, they make him a positive father figure. They make him a positive father figure. He's accepted and loved by his crew, even after he is forcibly outed for being somewhat of a pansy. I think, actually, the word they use in the movie mm-hmm. is whoopsie, which is so good to me. <laughs> <laughs> they call him a, a whoopsie and twinkle toes. It's incredible, and, like, I... I was looking back through some Tumblr posts and tags about this because I think that the way that people love this movie is just really important and special. And every single edit that I have ever seen on the site has him with his feathery pink fan standing in front of the mirror, like smiling and dancing around because that was so outside the norm of what you were seeing, what you even see now, where it's like, mm-hmm. no, it wasn't supposed to be funny. Like, um, a man dancing around in a dress joyfully, it's not meant to be, oh, haha, a man dressed up as a woman. It's just supposed to be, this is something he enjoys and that makes him happy. And it's so nice that at the end of that, his crew says, ah, oh, we always knew you were a little bit strange. You're still all right by us. That is... So uh, good. <laughs> the um the the quote from this article, and it uses some outdated language, so be warned, well. listeners. Just a little bit, but <laughs> it's it just says in this paper when De Niro asks Vaughn whether the captain is gay or a transvestite, Vaughn's answer is whatever you want to be, Bob. <laughs> and that is so true and so real. <laughs> And it's so important, too. I, I just, I love the idea that the dress that Yvain is wearing is actually one of Captain Shakespeare's. And it just so happens yes. that he's lending it to her. I do miss the presence of the female healer on the ship. Because I think generally the misogyny directed Agreed. toward Yvain by the pirates is, like, hard to watch. Um, yes. Given it's later on like everything that captain shakespeare says he walks back and is like of course you're a darling and i love you but it is hard to hear those things directed at a woman um and overall it's i think this guy really hard to watch at the start yeah when you don't know I was like what did they do to the sky pirates what did they do to these delightful people who like hear tristan call for help and help him because that's yeah. like a huge thing in the, I, the book is that he's calling for help and Evane's like, no one's going to come help us. Why are you yelling? And then someone hears their call and helps them. Yes. And it is not nearly as much of the book as it is the movie. They really went hard on the Sky Pirates for this film, which I, mm-hmm. I literally have notes in my book of being like, I can't believe the Sky Pirates aren't going to be in here because I just kept getting further and further along the front half of the book moves so slowly and the back half is just like you blink and you miss it. And I was like, there's no room for them to go on a whole journey and get made over and have their little montage of learning to play the piano and ballroom dance and sword fight because the sky pirates, while they show up are maybe three pages of the book. 
And it's Johannes Albernick and a healer and various other crewmates. And it's just not at all what it is in the movie. <laughs> yeah. It's it's interesting because there is the implication that there's some overlap with what it is in the movie because Tristan remembers it as his favorite part of the journey. Mm-hmm. But I, I like that they go more in depth with it. But I don't I don't like that the pirates were mean at first. <laughs> yes. I don't like that it involves but that's making just comments me. about share and share alike on our crew. I don't think we need that kind of language. Um That's like my and, biggest issue with the movie, I think, is that they make every character so much meaner than they actually are. They remove yeah. the fact that most of the people in Fairy are innately helpful. Yeah, they're willing to help. It's just sort of an exchange as opposed to, you know, you owe me one. It's more of a, well, you helped me already, so I'll do you a favor or whatever. Like, it's exactly. it's not everyone wants Evane to stay healthy and alive and everyone wants Tristan to succeed. And Tristan and Evane likewise want to help people and we see that because even after the conclusion of the book, what we get in the epilogue is they spent two years and then five more years and then however many more months traveling around helping people, not ruling Stormhold, which, you know, I think that the movie in particular goes really hard on the idea of an everlasting eternal mm -hmm. ruler being the answer. And I don't think we need that kind of pro-monarchy <laughs> talk in our fictional Correct. Uh, media but <laughs> the book gets into it a little bit too I feel like it's a little softer about it but at least you see them wandering around fairy itself helping people not because they have to and in fact shirking their obligations to the broader uh, regime of the Stormhold family just because they want to keep existing in fairy as it is and helping people and working with them on a community level exactly yeah. yeah, still still very pro-monarchy, though, at the end. It's like, and Evane ruled forever, even after Tristan died. And it's like, well, no. Even if she was sad. <laughs> even if she was sad and lonely. And it's like, man, what a devastating mm -hmm. ending for Evane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, whereas the movie is like, happily ever after. They're both stars now, golly gee. They're both stars. And... Who cares about what happens? I just don't... I like the sort of melancholy ending of the star living on even after the man that she loves dies. Um, it's I think something that, that they acknowledge when they like admit their love to each other and they admit that yes. like they can't have kids because they're a star and a half-mortal. So the fact that they like have kids in the movie who can continue on the lineage, I'm like, mm -hmm. no... The whole point is that they loved each other anyways. Yeah. Yeah. I love Evane's admission of feelings in the book where she just says, you know, people like us won't be able to have children together. And it's just sort of this moment of, oh, okay. So that's how we're saying it. That's how we're saying we want to have a thing together as opposed to the caravan mm -hmm. confession and hookup in the movie, which again, everyone is having so it's much so more sex dumb. in the movie and it doesn't work. <laughs> the caravan confession is so dumb and like ob ob objectively it is scripted but it's so scripted you know 
Mm-hmm. And it's another one of those things where it's like, Evane can see everything when it's helpful for them. Like, they want her to be able to say, I've seen what love looks like, and blah, blah, blah. But it just doesn't feel like a thing anyone would say to each other. And also, Trish, Tristan, yeah. again, being kind of a dick by pretending that he can't hear her when he can. Mm-hmm. Just, we didn't exactly. Need to and then they add the, 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 the like, the miscommunication plot. Yes. Um, Which they didn't need to do <laughs> at all because in the book they are so directly communicative with each other. And Tristan's like, great, I'm going to go over the wall real quick and go talk to people and then I'll be back. Yeah, and you know, there even is a minute where Evane is like, he went to see Victoria and he doesn't care for me the way that I thought he did. And she considers walking toward the wall and... Victoria and Una both in part are like no you're misinterpreting this situation and Evane goes yeah that's that's correct exactly. actually I think I've misread <laughs> which is reasonable yeah. to me as opposed to just being like well I'll walk over the wall and turn into a hunk of rock and that'll be the end of it because this guy that I love doesn't love me back there's a lot more solidarity between women in the book yeah, that's because multiple women talk to each other. <laughs> For longer amounts of time. For longer amounts of time. Una gets to be on screen a I little bit I truly wish we had gotten, like... Yeah, Una gets to be on screen and gets to have, like... Everything she does in the movie feels very, like, motivated to reach her own goals. Mm-hmm. Of becoming free. Because they change... The conditions under which she becomes freed also for the movie. They yes. they simplified it in a really stupid way. This is Killed the thing. Is, when I first watched this movie after reading the book, the one thing I could remember was, oh, they took out the stupid riddle for how Una can become free again. And now reading back through it, I'm like, no, the nursery rhymes and the riddles and all of that are very much part of how fairy operates. And it works really well to have this terminology of this is when you become free. And to get that instead of, well, Ditchwater Sal's head got shot off with green fire. So now Una's free and then is immediately enslaved again by a different witch. Yeah, they, they completely take out the fact that, like, nursery rhymes and stories have power in fairy. They still call it a Babylon candle without acknowledging the the song that goes with yeah. it. Tristan doesn't even know the song. He calls it a bubbling candle, which is just very, like, mm-hmm. why even give we it a name? a lot then. of really stupid stuff like that, of, like, Tristan mispronouncing Evane's name, Tristan saying bubbling candle, it's like... They completely ignore the fact that, like, he is, like, he steps into fairy and suddenly, like, a part of him wakes up. Like, they don't, never even talk about the fact that he can tell where things are in fairy. They do it as a joke, actually. Like, yeah. At one point, Evane is like, how do you know where we're going? And I quote, you, you just do. And it's like, but he does. In the book, we see multiple times that he... While in fairy, for whatever reason, has this ability to say, this is in this direction. I know exactly where this is at. I know where the star is at all times. And in the movie, it's just kind of like, like, he's not that special. That becomes a really compelling, like, reveal when you realize he is the youngest of the blood of Stormhold. It's like, oh, that's probably why he knows where everything in fairy is and how to, like, pinpoint where Stormhold is and things like that. Yeah. 
because he has this connection to the world itself and to the people in it that we I feel like in the movie even the Lord of Stormhold doesn't even mean that much like we know that the fantasy world is Stormhold exactly. but we don't know what being the Lord of it means and yeah, you know also I, cat girl erasure cat girl Una. erasure I'm so glad you said this where had to point where that out cat ears it's very funny to me that Where's Una specifically cat has cat ears and her brothers don't seem to have anything. I mean, Septimus is crow-like, yeah. but they all seem to be perfectly normal. And then she just has this cat girl swag that no one else in the book gets to have. Literally. I also just think Una is so charming in this book in a way that you lose because she gets the thing about come back to the market and make the sound of an owl and when Dunstan does she says that's not an mm-hmm. owl <laughs> like, I just think she's great she's funny and charming and every time she shows up I'm delighted to see her exactly she's got she's got way more going on in the book and I think truly just like the slow rollout of reveals for every mm-hmm. character really adds a lot because you don't know that Una was a princess or royalty first you learn that way later on that she is the missing stormhold daughter yeah you just know that she was a stolen baby Mm -hmm. you know that she's tristan's mother and you know tristran's whole backstory well before he does you spend the whole book waiting for him to find that out but the way in which it unfurls itself you're learning new things about what that means the whole time so that by the time he finally exactly. figures it out, you go, oh, I see it now. And you get these, like, really nice, like, retroactive moments, too, of, like, his time spent with Primus is really, like, almost very familial. And Primus is like, I'll have to show you Stormhold one day after we're both done with our tasks and our journeys. Like, yeah. thank you for your help. Like the, And just, like, talking. And then... By the end of the book, you realize, oh, Primus was his uncle. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you don't really get all that much in the movie because the movie is so determined to make all the lords of Stormhold into the comedic relief. Mm-hmm. It gives I... you all the lore right up front. It just it, it tells you everything. It tells you everything so directly and does not let you put any pieces together. Yeah, and you know, in the book, it's like Septimus is crow-like and creeping, and almost, I don't think he actually speaks at all. Um, he He's Ever. just like the specter of death that shows up here and there. And in the movie, they were like, he gets to swagger around and make these grand statements and whatever. And I just feel like that time could have been better devoted to other things, as opposed to, you know, the ghosts heckling the living <laughs> and... Mm-hmm. peeking in when they're having sex and things like that like it was just very it's funny and it yeah. adds something to the movie that is fun and moves it along but it changes the entire tone of that side story <laughs> yeah it, it makes it a more comedic side story and less of like a tense hunt almost where you're so worried that Septimus and Tristan are ever going to cross paths. Yeah, because Septimus would just kill him. And mm-hmm. in, in the movie, it's like, oh, great. Tristan is head clown of the clown circus now. Like, mm-hmm. good job. <laughs> it 
And that, that was one like, of the things that stuck out to me most was just how much that storyline was kind of played up for laughs um, mm-hmm. as opposed to given the sort of weight of like there is this great comeuppance of who will be the ruler of this kingdom happening right alongside everything else. Mm-hmm. If Tristan doesn't succeed. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's a really compelling storyline. I feel like you miss a lot of the like interesting reconnections between characters that way and like some of the more high tension moments because you don't get the um the the Ditchwater Sal caravan crossing paths which with the Lilim again that second time where the curse that she has placed for her not to see the star works against her. Mm-hmm. You don't yeah. see that come up and happen where she's got the star in the caravan and when the witch asks, well, who is traveling with you? And like does it with a spell because she can't see the star. She doesn't say that the star is with her and therefore the star survives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like Evane only survives because of the spell that was put on Ditchwater Cell for trying to find a star in the first place, which is just very clever and yep. very convoluted and not something that Hollywood wanted to deal with. But it would have been so good. Yeah, because instead the it's caravan ride is just scenes. kind of like nothing. It's just sort of like, ah, and we're riding through and I'm going to confess my love to a mouse. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. There are lots of things like that where the movie was obviously aiming for something more lighthearted and it works. I love this movie. And then I read the book and I go, oh, that's right. It's a completely different thing. <laughs> yeah. The last act of the movie really lost me. Like, I think I would have enjoyed the movie more had I watched it first, but I yes. watched it 15 minutes after finishing the book. Yeah. And the, the last act is so strange because again, they did just say we need to have a big fight scene at the end because that's how these mm-hmm. movies are supposed to go. And so they bring all With of the witches there together. And all these reunions. Yes. Una running up and saying, I'm your sister. I'm your mother. As like death and destruction is happening and a vein mm-hmm. is strapped to a table. And it's like, I really loved the scene at the end of the book where Yvain finds the witch and says like, I don't hold it against you and I hope that you find peace. Like, I think that that resolution of that plot is really yeah. nice. And instead in the movie, it's like, and all the witches have to die. And like, that's the moment where we learn like with 100% confidence that she has fallen in love with Tristan. Cause this yeah. is before they've had their, well, stars and mortals can't have children conversation. It's the witch going, Oh, you don't have your heart anymore. You've given yeah, it to which that boy. One of my favorite details of this is to say, like, the solution for her is that she's given her heart to someone else. Because it's vague enough and also mm-hmm. such a common turn of phrase that it doesn't really stick out. But, you know, Yvain says that in the caravan to Tristan. She says, my heart feels like it doesn't belong to me anymore. It belongs to you. And it's later confirmed that that's what mm-hmm. happened, but that doesn't stop the witches from trying to steal and eat her heart anyway. So it just, it, it kind of muddles the yeah. mythology that it's trying to build. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. The final scene, the final scenes, the big fight scene where 
Septimus drowns and then comes back to life and every single witch has to have her moment where she dies heroically. It just keeps going on and on and on. There are like three points where you go, oh, is it finally over? And it isn't. (laughs) And they just keep fighting and then the witch And Yvain has her magical girl shining power. Which was stupid. (laughs) (laughs) They took the bit about what do stars do shine so very far in the movie. And in the book, I feel like she's just kind of a normal girl, you know? Like, she doesn't have... She has a different perspective on human life, and she is immortal. But she doesn't, like, burn people to a crisp and explode them because she's happy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's dumb. It's dumb. (laughs) What do stars do? Shine is so... Again, there's so much to enjoy about this movie. I do genuinely love Robert De Niro, and Michelle Pfeiffer does an excellent job as the witch, even if I think that the changes made to the witch storyline are not great. Um, And Charlie Cox is excellent, People really hate on Claire Danes, but I think that she was doing the best that she could with what she was given. (laughs) Yeah. And as far as the special effects go, there are certainly movies with worse. But that being said, the book that it's based off of is so stellar. And there's so much room to expand on it and to make it into something beautiful. And instead they were like, haha, comedy, haha, big final fight, which is very 2000s of them. Yeah, it was very 2007 of them when the source material is this genuinely, like, moving, interconnected, beautiful fairy tale. My my partner referred to it when, um, my partner, when they found out I was covering this for the show, referred to it as Neil Gaiman's Princess Bride. Yes! Yes! And if they'd gone for a sort of Which Princess is, like, a Bride. much more accurate... Yes, mm-hmm. if they'd gone for a Princess Bride and instead of a Lord of the Rings, it, I think it would have been a little bit truer to the source material because that is the kind of tone that we're setting here, you know? There is this sort of comedy. Absolutely. And this twisty-turny riddle stuff and this cleverness to it that I don't think the movie really wanted to deal with. Yeah. No, my favorite thing is you can tell that they didn't much want to get into that and that wasn't the vibe that they wanted to set for this based on the previews for the movie before it was released, which were often just shots of the horses racing across the fields and the ship moving through the sky and the big fight at the end. And I remember these very specifically because one of them came on and my father, who was in the room with me, was like, well, now I don't know anything about that movie other than the fact that Michelle Pfeiffer is in it. (laughs) I mean... That is a compelling reason to go see a movie. It was for me. I went and saw it the weekend that it came out. Like, <laughs> love, love Michelle Pfeiffer. She did excellent. Yeah, I don't know. I, I think the movie is good, but it's very much more movie. And it meant to be that way. And when you look at it after having read the book, you go, oh, but the book did so much. That was really lovely. Mm-hmm. I also have three things in Emma's nitpick corner. Ooh, yes. Why was the snowdrop so ugly? <laughs> that is a great Why question. Why did it look 
like cheap plastic and not a pretty glass snowdrop. They ran out of money animating the starshine. Arts department had Clearly. to work with paper mache. Um, why is the topaz a ruby? <laughs> That's a great and why question. does it have to change colors? Yeah, the changing why colors Why is it not thing. simply a topaz? <laughs> I have to assume that the blood red is, like, symbolic of the violence that comes with being a lord of Stormhold. But it is very, like... Maybe. Why does it turn white and then turn red? Like, why did we have to do that special effect thing? <laughs> yeah. Why could it not have simply just been the topaz that it was in the book? And also, last but not le- least, why Michelle wipe her dress green and not red when it mentions like 10,000 times in the book that the second the witch gets young and hot again, she's like, I'm wearing all red, baby. <sighs> yeah, the witches were kind of done dirty by this movie. I I feel mm-hmm. like they're just not as creepy as they were in the book. Yeah. I also have a fourth nitpick that I forgot about. Oh, yes. The the dress that she gets from Captain Shakespeare is fine. However, we could have had her in such a pretty dress with the little stars sewn onto yeah, it. Yeah, no moons and stars, which is just rude. We could have had such a pretty dress. <laughs> we could have had such a pretty dress and instead it just kind of looks like a costume which is fine because given the context mm-hmm. that she gets it from it's probably a costume um also everyone's outfits just kind of look like a costume i'm like wow i've seen you at renfest <laughs> my big nitpick is why is the makeover that tristan gets from captain shakespeare instead of from the small hairy man which is just me missing the small hairy man I'm... i love him the small hairy man is so good and it is a tragedy that he has been removed from the movie right like he shows up to introduce tristram to the way that fairy works and to explain to him the fellowship of the castle in some nebulous way which again fellowship of the castle not mentioned at all in the movie which i understand it Mm -hmm. is kind of a niche thing that would take a lot of explaining to do but it does more to sort of embed I but it's the so characters. Good. Yeah, it's just lovely to be like, and there is this group that is actively looking out for Tristran because he did right by one of their own. And that's part of why he succeeds. Mm-hmm. So, no, my, I, I have to pull open my notes here because I have so many. Um, my big moment is why does Tristan have to have a Lord Palpatine force lightning moment? Yes correct (laughs) he just whips out this lightning and electrocutes one of the witches and it's very like okay okay (laughs) like all right i guess absolutely unnecessary um yeah i don't know There, there were a lot of changes in this film where it was sort of like you really wanted this to be Really wanted this to be dramatic. Also, I had to explain this. I watched it with my partner as well, who has seen it once because I have seen it like 30 times and one time they were around. And we got to the moment with the voodoo doll that the witch makes and then drops into the water and drowns Septimus, which is just Mm -hmm. like kind of haunting conceptually and to watch. But I know that that's what's happening because I've seen that movie so many times and my partner Mm -hmm. had no idea (laughs) just like 
<laughs> couldn't hack what was going on there. <laughs> or the voodoo doll then coming back and allowing Septimus to sort of necromantically fight Tristan. It was very, okay. I think the death in the book being off screen is odd, but effective. Yeah. Oh, I forgot that Tristan creeps on Evane when she's in the bath in the movie. Ugh, so many yep. choices were made. There's a lot of 2007 moments. Yeah. It's very... In, like, like the humor choices and the action choices. Yeah. Yeah. I love it so dearly. And a lot of that is nostalgia. <laughs> but it, it, it made like, a lot of choices. I also know that it could have been worse oh yeah given who like one of the one of the screenwriters one of the writers for the screenplay is the same person who did the screenplay adaptation of the woman in black (laughs) which i have heard is a very unfaithful not good adaptation oh i'm sure and will be covered on the show eventually (laughs) best of luck to you on that one yep yeah it could have been worse it is an enjoyable film it just has different goals than the book did. Yeah. Namely to appeal yeah, to it, families. Yeah, it is trying to tell a, Yeah, it's trying to tell a family story. It's it's not trying to end <laughs> up with one copy in the regular fiction section of the library. <laughs> I actually bought a second copy of this book for the podcast because I wanted to be able to mark it up. And the first version that I have, I've had since 2007 or 2008. And it was released to promote the movie and so has one of those inserts in the center with behind the scenes photos and interviews and things like that to tell you about the cast and the making of the film. And all of the photos are Evane in the caravan. (laughs) (laughs) It's all about the Dormouse scene. That doesn't surprise me. You know, they just, they wanted to go all in on... The romance and the big fight scene. And in the book, those two things were really not necessary. The romance is there. But so often, Evane and Tristan, what makes them special is like what isn't said necessarily. It's things like Tristan Tristan deciding Mm -hmm. to let her go. And them choosing to adventure around together, despite the fact that they no longer have to. Um, and Evane starting yeah. to walk toward the wall and then realizing she's misunderstood and Tristran does love her and stopping. Um, and I don't think they ever really even say, I love you. They just say, you know, we'll never be able to have kids. Wink, wink. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's, it's a lot more of a subtle story and I get why some of the changes were made. And I, I think it's, interesting because it does work well to be adapted to a visual medium because it was uh, a comic first Mm -hmm. yeah it was and you know the comic was like a four issue prestige run thing and the book is expanding on the story that was told um so there's definitely more to it the book is like almost exact from what i read about the adaptation process to the book is that the book itself is almost exactly the same just with slightly more description where Neil Gaiman was like ah the picture did more of the work here I need to add a description Mm -hmm. yeah like if you look at the comic 
there there's a lot of text <laughs> it's not your standard mm-hmm. sort of and it, i believe it was released with dc so you hear that and you think oh it'll be panel yes. by panel but instead it's like more of an illustrated story um and yeah there are certainly things that are changed but you get to like see the hairy man and things like that yeah but yeah, there there are so many lengthy descriptions in the book. It's very funny to me. I marked, like, I think you go 30 pages before anyone even speaks. Because it's so busy describing the town of Wall. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, Tristan doesn't even leave Wall until, like, almost 100 pages Yeah, in. and the book is only 230 pages And it's pages not long. a very long book. It's very <laughs> quick, and so much of it is just like, and here's what it's like in Wall. <laughs> it could have been expanded. You know, they did the thing with The Hobbit, where they made a 100-page book into three films. And I don't think that Stardust needed that. Mm-hmm. But... I think if they wanted to remake it as a limited run series starring Maya Hawke and a yet to be named man who is not Timothy Chalamet, they could definitely make it go for eight or nine episodes. No, I think you're so right, especially because like the movie is so long Mm -hmm. and yet I feel like so much less happens. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's a very fair assessment. The movie feels very long. And it is. It's like two hours. It is. And so much of it is like, here's this beautiful shot of the countryside as the horses ride across it. Um, And the the cinematic Mm -hmm. work here is wonderful. But you could cut so much of it and still have the story that it's trying to tell. And with the book, it's like, you could cut it and the movie did cut it. And what you lost was that sort of world building cushion that made those slower moments worthwhile. Um, it, cause it just, it just reads like a very lovely little world. I love the bit about there was a squirrel who was actually a prince who needed to eat the nut of wisdom. And the squirrel yeah. is swallowed by an owl who's a princess cursed until she can swallow a squirrel who has eaten the nut of wisdom. <laughs> like it just builds itself out mm-hmm. in this very sort of matryoshka way. That is very fun. Um, on broader scales than even that, that's just a good example. I think of the amount of time and thought that went into sort of building everything in the book. And then the movie is just sort of like, no, absolutely. This is a magical world where magical things happen. Good luck. <laughs> Yeah, it both wanted to make the world seem more magical while at the same time, like, actual interviews said that things like like the cat ears were changed because the director wanted it to be more grounded in the real world. Mm. And I think by trying to ground fairy in the real world, you lose so much of what makes it compelling. It's no longer fairy, and they don't call it that. And I think it's so integral. Exactly. For it to be fairy because that introduces a whole bunch of rules and regulations and creatures and possibilities and when they say you know every mm-hmm. world that has ever been conquered and has lost some amount of its magic is now a part of fairy that's like oh there's so much here that we haven't even seen when they say stormhold you go okay mm-hmm. so that's like what one town exactly yeah yep um, are there any other things about the adaptation 
you want to talk oh, about gosh. or should we move into our wrap-up questions? I have like five pages of notes, but so many of them are just things like Robert De Niro <laughs> is my drag queen hero, um, which is true. <laughs> I, I, do, I do have some notes that I'm like, what was this about again? Because I just have a note that just says hot girl moment. Oh, who knows? I hope that that's about Una, but she did not have very many of those. <laughs> I, I think it was when Michelle Pfeiffer gets young. Oh, yes. And she turns around and looks at herself in the mirror and winks. Mm-hmm. I'm, I hope yep, she that's had her fun. hot girl moment. I hope she had fun. <laughs> it looked like she did. Um, oh, yeah. I also have a note that says the titty boing dot dot dot. That's about when they turn the 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 boy trying to sell the the billy goat into a daughter. Oh yes, when they turn and that Bernard... didn't the end didn't have to be as creepy as it that didn't have to be as creepy as they made it. No, there's a lot of things where it's again very two thousands in terms of its approach to sex and to women's bodies in particular. You know, there's that moment where Bernard is made mm-hmm. into a young woman and he gets weird about it. And then there's also when Michelle Pfeiffer is trying to make herself younger and very obviously her tits sag. And it's like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. We didn't That's need that. Why. We didn't need that. We just didn't. Um, but yeah, I think most of my notes at this point have been covered. <laughs> cool. Um, then first question I have for you is if you had to make like one change to this adaptation... What, what would you do? What would what would you fix? I would replace Tristan with Tristran. That's it's just not <laughs> he's not likable. <laughs> Charlie Cox is, and so I like him. But if you just look at the words on the page and what he says and does, he's kind of a dick. Okay. <laughs> For a second there, I thought you meant just the name. <laughs> Only if his change. name was Tristran, his dick-like behavior would be more understandable, actually, because doubtless he's been bullied for his name his entire life. Oh my god, so true. I So on the one hand, yes, the name, and on the other hand, the characters. Yeah, he just needs to be so much more likable. Yeah, he does. Because in the book, he's just a nice kid. Yeah, he's just a nice kid. I mean, my second more serious answer is I would remove the entire third act with the fight scene, but that's part of what makes this movie what it is. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. What about you? What it's, would you it's change? Tough. <laughs> yeah. Also, the third act. <laughs> I would. I think even if I even if I kept the big fight. Uh, the. The miscommunication plot edition made me so angry that I literally paused the movie, messaged you about it, and then made lunch. (laughs) It's infuriating. And I took like half an hour to calm down and come back to it because it made me that upset. The level of trust between the two of them by the end of the book is so nice. And in the movie, it's like, well, Elaine hears Mm -hmm. secondhand that Tristan still likes Victoria, and so she decides to kill herself. Mm-hmm. And I just can't. Yep. Um, so my l- next wrap-up question is, how faithful do you think this adaptation is? 
you know, I think it's faithful to the spirit of the thing, if not to the letter. Um, it doesn't go in trying to make a fairy tale movie because I don't think that you could properly adapt the book itself to a cinematic venture like this. Um, so all the changes that it makes, I understand because it's trying to tell the story in a different way. It's about as faithful as you could get without doing like an eight episode long miniseries on Max featuring some of the greatest writers and in yeah. fact featuring Gaiman himself probably because now he does that sort of thing. <laughs> mm-hmm. He does do that now. Yeah, we've got good omens. Yeah, to like on a, on a scale of one to ten, what would you give it? I would say this is about like a six or a seven. It tries really hard to adapt the story in a way that works. And I appreciate that, even if it doesn't always land. Yeah, agreed. And then, do you think it's a good movie? (laughs) I love this movie. Standalone, is it a good movie? I watch this movie once every year or so. I adore it so dearly. But (laughs) I think it's an acquired taste. If you don't like the movie the first time you see it, you will never (laughs) like it. (laughs) scale of one to ten. Oh gosh scale of one to ten for me it's like a nine and for anyone else i would say again probably a six (laughs) (laughs) and then my last question is do you think they used the adaptation medium well do you think they used film well for the adaptation oh yeah other than the pacing you know it's a beautiful movie i would in terms of a rating scale in effectiveness of converting this to a movie it's a ten like it is a movie. <laughs> Hell yeah. It is not a book that exists as a movie. Well, it is a movie. It, it is a movie. Nice. <laughs> yeah, I think it does work as like a standalone, even if you haven't read the book. They cut out all in the a way stuff that, a lot that makes of you feel like you have to questions. <laughs> yeah. What's a Babylon well, candle? Thank you, you don't so much for know. being on the show, Blink. What's a Babylon candle? I've never known. <laughs> Neither does Tristan. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Neither does Tristan. Yeah. Uh, do you have anything you would like to plug to our audience? I don't know when this episode's going up because of the strike. So oh, yeah. That's such a difficult time question. time sensitive. Who knows? Yeah. I'm not really doing anything right now. <laughs> Um, fair. Yeah, I mean, I'm around. <laughs> um, is it is it ghost to recommend you visit my AO3? <laughs> Do it. I'm not gonna stop you. Okay. Well, as as Emma, that's adaptation knows, in a way. Yes, it is adaptation in a way. I've been debating writing one about Stardust for the past couple days, so you know, maybe by the time this is out, there'll be something there. <laughs> I'm Marquis, M-R, no, M-A-R-Q, no, I can't spell today. (laughs) I'm Marquis on AO3, so that's M-A-R-Q-U-I-S. There we go. First try, speedrun strats. Um, And from there, you can probably find all the internet places where I exist, but I don't, I don't exist professionally pretty much anywhere anymore, so... (laughs) And as always, I'm your host, Emma. You can find me on what was formerly Twitter at EmmaSCA. You can find the podcast on also formerly Twitter at UnselectPod. This is a part of the Moonshot Podcast Network. 
Uh, and at, the music for this show was composed by Jake Loringer. You can find more of his stuff at amaranthine.bandcamp.com. And as always, let us make your movie. <laughs> it's our turn. Let us make Tristan Tristran. Let us. I have ideas and thoughts. <laughs>